Hi, this is Sandy, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's my privilege to be with you today on this Sunday, July 3rd. This is the final part in our sermon series, The Countercultural Christian. This has been an amazing journey through the first five chapters of Ecclesiastes to find out what a countercultural Christian is and what we are to be countercultural to. Here's a little review of what we talked about so far. In part one, we asked the question, what is wisdom without God? And we found that it is in Jesus Christ that we gain the wisdom of God to deal with life and the fear of death. Ultimately, wisdom without God is nothing. It's meaningless like vapor in the wind. In part two, we asked the question, what does pleasure accomplish? We found that pleasure in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but if you truly want pleasure in your life, God has got to be at the center of it, and that is clearly countercultural. In part three, we asked the question, are you working for God's glory? Here we found that the idea of working for the glory of God and not ourselves is countercultural. We saw that taking pride in our work because it's for the Lord and not ourselves is countercultural. And lastly, we found that when we work, we're called to act in a way that honors God, and that is clearly countercultural. Last week in part four, we addressed the statement, life is unfair. And we found that the world is not a fair and just place to be. And while we should work hard to do our part to combat that unfairness, Jesus commands his disciples in Matthew 28 to make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Why? Because when you change the hearts of men, you give them true freedom, a freedom from sin and guilt and shame. And when people are freed from those chains, they are free indeed. In today's sermon, it's titled, Don't Be a Fool in Worship. We're going to look at answers and insights into how not to be a fool in worship and that authentic worship is also countercultural. The main scripture passage is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. There's a lot to talk about, but before we do, would you join me in an opening word of prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, almost high. Lord, this has been an amazing journey, and we want to finish it well today, so teach us. We don't want to be a fool in anything we do, particularly in worship. So, Lord, help us to understand and implement what you teach in our lives. In Jesus' name, then everyone said, Amen. All right, let's get to reading. Open up your Bible or Bible app to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, and follow along as I read. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. 
Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. A Missouri couple decided to build a luxury home in Florida, but they accidentally constructed a $650,000 house on the lot next door to the one that they purchased. You see, the initial survey of the property was wrong. In a similar story, a Rhode Island developer mistakenly built a $1.8 million house on public park land. Again, the survey was wrong, and the Rhode Island Supreme Court ordered the house be removed from public land. The moral? When you build a home, you better make sure you build in the right place. Now here in Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon is offering a slightly different kind of moral to his readers. He's saying, if you're going to worship God, better make sure you do it in the right way because there's a right way and a wrong way to worship God. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. They say this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Solomon is saying there's a right way and a wrong way to worship God. The right way is that of wise men, and the wrong way is the way of fools. Now, as many of you know, I'm a worship guy. I've been around this for many, many years. So as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought it would be interesting to ask, how do fools worship God? Well, from verses 1 and 2 that we just read, Solomon tells us that fools don't even know that they do wrong in worship. Also, they're quick and hasty in what they say. In other words, they talk without thinking. And lastly, they say a lot, but they mean a little. In other words, they're hypocrites. Solomon says very clearly to guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Now, I don't want to worship like a fool, so I want to know what a fool's worship looks like. And what caught my attention in this text was that Solomon said fools don't know what they do wrong in worship. Let's look again, the second half of verse 1, verse 1b. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Now, what could a fool do in worship that would be wrong? As I thought about that, my mind drifted back to three stories in the Old Testament. First, I thought about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of the first high priest Aaron. They had many jobs in the tabernacle, and one of those jobs was to offer incense to God at the altar of incense in the tabernacle. Now, God's word was very explicit on how they should offer the incense, but these boys, they couldn't be bothered with details. They didn't think it mattered how they did what they did in the presence of God. They thought they could improve on the things of God, but they were wrong. Leviticus 10.2 tells us, So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up, and they died there before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu offered the sacrifice of fools. They did what was wrong, and they died because of it. Then there's the story of King Uzziah. King Uzziah started out as a fairly righteous king, but as time went on and he became more powerful and successful, he decided he was important enough that he didn't need the Levitical priests to do his worship for him. He decided he had the right to go into the temple and offer incense at the incense altar. He thought he could improve on the things God had commanded, but he was wrong. 2 Kings 15.5 says, The Lord struck the king with leprosy, which lasted until the day he died. 
Uzziah offered the sacrifice of fools. He did what was wrong, and he went to his grave stricken with leprosy. Then there's the story of King Manasseh. King Manasseh did not start out right. Almost from the beginning of his reign, he did all kinds of bad things. One of the things he did was to rearrange the furniture in the temple. He took the altar of sacrifice and replaced it with a pagan altar. And possibly worst of all, he offered up his son as a burnt offering to one of those pagan gods. Now eventually, Manasseh repented of all the evil that he had done and God forgave him. But 2 Kings 23.26 tells us, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. Manasseh had offered the sacrifice of fools. He did what was wrong, and it hurt his nation. He had led his nation into false worship, and there was no way of pulling them back out of that heresy. And this evil ultimately led to the destruction of that nation. So one of the aspects of the worship of fools is when they decide that they have the right to change things, when they rearrange the furniture because they think they can. I remember talking with a denominational preacher once and sharing that God had set things up here at Word of Hope Christian Church just the way that he wanted to, in the New Testament pattern that we find in the book of Acts, and that we believed it was unwise to try and improve on that pattern. He actually scoffed at that. He really did, and he said, of course you can improve on the church in the New Testament. The church of the New Testament was a primitive thing, and the church has to change to meet the times. And that's what so many churches do. They tinker with stuff. They think they're smart enough to improve on the things of God. They believe they're entitled to set up the church the way they want to. For example, did you know that when you became a Christian, the Bible says you became a priest? It's true. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests. And did you know that when you became a Christian, the Bible says you also became a saint? It's true. Romans 1.7 says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. But there are churches that say, no, no, no. They teach that only certain people can become priests and saints. These congregations teach that it's not enough for you to be a Christian, that you have to become something more to be priests and saints. And folks, that's just not biblical. Now, why would they do that? Why would they redefine biblical terminology? Well, they do it because they feel they have the right to improve on what God has said. But Jesus said in Matthew 15, 9, their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. When you start substituting your own rules and terminologies for God's stuff in Scripture, you change the meanings of words and ultimately change the way worshipers think about themselves as followers of Christ. And that ultimately warps the worship of those who like to honor God. Sometimes churches don't stop at redefining the meaning of biblical words. Sometimes churches simply rearrange the furniture. Sometime back, I read about a church that moved its communion table to a side room so the Lord's Supper was no longer offered in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings. Now, why would they do that? I also read about a huge church up north that completely did away with taking communion on Sunday mornings. Why did they do that? This is their explanation, and I quote, Taking communion on Sunday mornings interferes with the flow of worship. End quote. Are you kidding me? Really? Seriously? It interrupted the flow of worship? According to Acts 20, verse 7, the early church came together on the first day of the week and gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. That's what the scripture says. They were taking communion. That's why they gathered. 
Now, it's just so happened that Paul was there and he was allowed to preach. But the main reason the church gathered was to observe the Lord's Supper. That was worship. But you know, a lot of trendy churches don't like that. They've redefined worship to mean something scripture never intended. Have you ever heard of a person at church called the worship leader? What's the worship leader supposed to do? They lead singing and the band. But singing and playing instruments is only a small portion of worship. So is preaching, so is praying, and so is the giving of our tithes and offerings. But you haven't worshipped until you've taken communion. This is the centerpiece of what we do, and that's why it's the last thing we do every Sunday here at Word of Hope Christian Church. Do you know what we're doing at the Lord's table? We're eating with Jesus, and nothing compares to sitting down with Jesus at his table. This is worship. There is no flow to worship until you've eaten with Jesus. In fact, every time you eat the Lord's Supper, you're preaching. Did you know that? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11:26, Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So it's important that church doesn't redefine God's terminology or rearrange God's furniture. When congregations get into the habit of doing stuff like that, they often end up offering a fool's worship. But you know, a church could do everything right. They could have all their ducks in a row. They could know and teach that all Christians are priests and saints and make a big deal about communion every Sunday. They could do all the right things every Sunday morning. But if they miss out on one certain thing in their worship, they would still be offering up the worship of fools. And do you know what that one thing might be? Solomon wrote in verse 1 of our text, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen. And Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty-eight, But even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. So we need to hear what Jesus commands us to do. And Jesus said his primary command to Christians was this, John 15, 12. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. Now, you know, the Bible is just full of each othering. In my files, I've got a list of 61 times in the New Testament where we are commanded to each other, each other. I could read the whole list to you right now, but I'm going to keep you awake. I don't want to bore you. But I'm just going to give you a partial list of the each others that are found just in the book of Romans. There's eight of them. The first is Romans 12, 5. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to, here it is, each other. Romans 12, 10. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. Romans 14, 13. Let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Romans 14, 19. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build up each other. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. Romans 15, 14. I am fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. You know these things so well, you can teach each other all about them. And lastly, Romans 16, 16, greet each other with a sacred kiss. All the churches of Christ send you their greetings. Now, my point is this, unless we each other, each other, we'll offer the worship of fools. As a church, we can do all the right things at just the right time. 
We can call Bible things by Bible names. We can have our doctrine just the way it ought to be. We can do all that and still displease God in our worship. We can still be offering the worship of fools if we don't learn to love each other as Jesus taught us. You know, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, If you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Leave your gift there. Did you see that? Don't try offering it to God until you've set things right with a brother or sister who you have a dislike with or may dislike you. You see, if Christians don't show love to each other, if they don't forgive each other, and they don't pray for each other, and they don't try to fix what's wrong between each other, God doesn't want your gifts. He doesn't want the sacrifices. He doesn't want the perfect theology. Because if we don't show love to one another, all we offer to God is a sacrifice of fools. Now, how do people get to the point where they do stuff like that? Why would they feel they could rearrange God's furniture, redefine his terminology, and abuse his people? Well, they get to that point because they've missed a couple of small details in Scripture. The first detail they missed is this. They forget who God is. Go to verse 2 of the text. Solomon wrote, God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So where's God? God's in heaven. You're not. That means he's God, and you're not. He's higher than you are. He's bigger than you are. He's smarter than you are. He gets to call the shots, not you. And once we come to grips with that reality, you want to take care of what he owns. Does God own his church? Does God have the right to tell us to do stuff here? Does God own the person next to you? Did Jesus die for that person? Does God have the right to expect us to love that person? You see how easy it is? Once you realize that God's in charge and that he owns everything, everything falls into place. It's that one small detail, realizing God is God and you're not. And that makes all the difference. The second small detail these people miss is they forget that worship starts before you get here. Solomon wrote again in verse 1, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. You see, the problem for too many churchgoers is they tend to compartmentalize God. For them, God only shows up at church. From Sunday afternoon on, they're on their own. God never enters their mind or their actions. I went to a gathering recently, and when I walked into the room, someone said, "Uh Uh-oh, we got to watch what we say. Pastor Tim's here. I'm like, really? Is God sitting on my shoulder or something? Is there a billboard flying across my forehead? Does he only enter the room when I open the door? Of course not. That's absurd. But a lot of people think about God that way. On Sunday, they'll put on their Sunday go-to-meeting clothes, and they'll be all pious and reverent while they're on the inside of the building. But Monday through Saturday, you could hardly tell that they know Jesus. Just check out their social media pages. I'm telling you, it's true. Many live immoral, greedy, and selfish lives because for them, church is sacred and everywhere else is secular. Do you remember when God told Moses to take off his shoes because the place where he was standing was holy ground? Was Moses inside the tabernacle or some other holy building? No! He's on a mountain in front of a bush. He's standing on rocks and dirt, and there's nobody around. There's no one there to impress. Just God. 
Let's bring this to a close today. True worship, wise worship, godly worship is where you and I want to be in God's presence so badly that a building can't hold him. True worship is when we hunger and thirst to be in his presence every moment of the day. Sunday mornings just aren't enough time to really worship him. We have to spend every moment of every day worshiping him. We can't wait to get up in the morning so we can talk to him about our day. We can't wait to get some alone time so we can share our thoughts and dreams with him. We literally thirst to be in his presence. D. Bradley put it this way, and I quote, Real worship is thirsty land crying out for rain, end quote. After World War I, Lawrence of Arabia brought some of his Arab friends to Paris. He showed them the sights of the city, the Arc de Triomphe, the Louvre, and Napoleon's tomb. But none of these things impressed them as much as something they saw in their room. They were really intrigued by the faucet in the bathtub of the hotel room. They spent a lot of time in the bathroom turning the faucets on and off. They found it amazing that one could turn a handle and get all the water that they wanted. Later, when they were ready to leave Paris and return to the east, Lawrence found them in the bathroom with wrenches. They were literally trying to disconnect the faucet. Now, why would they do that? When Lawrence asked them the question, they said, you see, it's very dry in Arabia. We need faucets there. If we have them, we'll have all the water we want. Now, you might laugh at that, but you laugh because you know where that water comes from. In the same way, worship is only the faucet. The true water of life comes only through Jesus Christ. And you can't get that water just by being satisfied with part-time worship. Jesus said in John 4, 14, But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Folks, without Jesus to supply for your thirst, you're never really going to be truly satisfied. And that's why it is so important to have a relationship with Christ, to allow him to be Lord of your life and allow him to quench your thirst. To God be the glory for this and all things. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.